Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 14th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor, Noah, excuse me, sorry, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. You should tell everybody when we're recording this, the day after uh, Daylight Savings Time. Right. So everybody day, knows day, where we're at. Day after Daylight Savings Time, Noah has a new puppy, so he was up <laughs> all night. My wife is on a business trip, so I have, uh, you know, I had to uh, get my son off to school, walk the dog, get my son breakfast, get the dog breakfast. Uh, and of course, an hour like it's you know it accelerated time because of the lost hour so yeah there's a lot of vagary uh going on here but i don't think there's a lot of vagary going on in the world as it stands uh we heard on friday that the administration had somehow seen reality i don't even think it came out of the administration but that uh but that the uh the revival of the iran deal the jcpoa had to be tabled and was being tabled uh, as uh, even though supposedly the deal was was uh, was completed, uh, there were some issues. The main issue, of course, being that we are now effectively at war with the guarantor of the uh, Iran deal, Russia. And then uh, Saturday night, uh, I believe, uh, the Iranians fired on two um, two U.S. sites uh, in Iraq. A consulate and a uh, and some kind of a base in Erbil. Um, astonishingly, uh, it took I think 15 hours for the State Department to issue a statement saying it is unacceptable <laughs> to fire on our positions in Iraq. 15 hours because of course they're panicked because they probably still uh, are are deluding themselves that they can that they can make this. Uh, this deal that is now dead um, and the media are, uh, are helping them along because I think you'll notice this isn't a very big story at the moment. And when Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor went on the Sunday talk shows, nobody asked him about the attack on their bill. Uh, so they are getting a uh, soft, the soft soap from, but I guess that'll, that'll end today when there is a white house press briefing and i assume that uh, i assume that uh, peter Ducey and others will uh, will will force jen saki to inform the world that you're not supposed to fire missiles at our consulate um but i think i i would just uh, pose frame it this way and then we can sort of get to a general discussion that um uh, we were talking last week about whether or not we're in a sort of new world and that a lot of people are still living in the old world and that we crossed the line into this new world when Russia crossed the border into Ukraine. And I think it's pretty clear that the idea that these negotiations over re-entering the Iran deal uh, were very much a feature of the world before Russia marched into Ukraine and that this is not a plausible, possible, whether or not it's a wise move, which I think people will understand we hear do not believe it is or that uh, the Iran deal is anything but a disaster in any case for 10,000 policy reasons that we can somehow be in 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 some kind of working relationship with Russia uh, on on Iran when we are uh, siding uh, in its siding against it in 
its war with Ukraine is just a um, preposterous delusion on the part of the negotiating team there, on the part of the administration, if they still hold it, and the part of Joe Biden, who hasn't yet come out and said, all right, look, we're, you know, if we won't let uh, a Russian, if we won't let a, a Russian restaurant, I know this is not him, but, you know, if, if no one's going to eat at a Russian restaurant, we're not going to have the Iranians take, we're not going to assent to a circumstance in which the Iranians are guaranteeing that the, uh, the Russians are guaranteeing that the Iranians are not, are not, uh, harvesting uranium and and uh, and uh, getting it up to uh weapons grade and to deal they, with and to deal with people who are you know firing on us um <clears throat> talk about new world old world by the way i've been to that consulate in erbil uh and it was the most extensive security uh re- regime i had ever been through they came out with um long poles with mirrors to put under the car uh when you come in to check for explosives because the, the fear then was about uh, jihadist terrorism in Iraq. It was never the, the, the idea wasn't we're, we're sitting here waiting for uh, uh, missiles from from Iran to be fired on us. So, yeah, very different world. There's also there's also a sort of weird domestic dom- different world uh, shift going on in that. And this one actually, I think, is positive. Congress asserting itself more and more often against the administration's policies or pushing the administration, including congressional Democrats, on both uh, some of the weapons transfers in Ukraine, which we talked about last week, but again, on the response to to this attack over the weekend, where, you know, a lot of there were Democrats who were saying, what's going on here? Like, come on, Joe Biden, this is this is not a legit thing to do. I think Elaine Luria of of, a Democrat in, in Virginia was outspoken about it. That's all for the good. Congress needs to start reasserting its authority on a lot of these issues that has been passive in the past. We've we've looked to the executive. He is the commander in chief, but they, a lot of the policy matters need to run through Congress. And I think it's good that he's getting pushback, particularly from his own party. Now, some of that might be completely craven and motivated by fears about the upcoming midterm elections, but that's fine. As long as it gets him to have to respond to these demands and he can't just write them off as Republicans being partisan. Noah? Yeah. So in regards to this particular attack, there is, I mean, the hue and cry because of the nature of the international environment is a little, is for a more muscular response to a direct and brazen attack on uh, the United States from originating from Iran. It's a big deal. And I understand why it's a big deal. Um, there's some, you can understand why the White House would want to downplay it now, uh, given their current commitments and the state of the international environment, what have you. Um, and I'm of two minds on it. Um, in part, there is a precedent for not responding to this in the wake of the Soleimani assassination. Missiles originated from Iran, struck American positions, wounded American service personnel, and we did not respond um, for a variety of reasons, different circumstances that was retaliatory. And we didn't want a cascading series of retaliatory responses Um, So it's a little different, but at least we have a bit of a precedent there. The problem is that um, particularly the Israeli side, when it comes to these negotiations, is worried that we're not going to let it go. Um, The the Russian side is effectively stalling uh, to the point now that the deal is in limbo. And if we don't rip the Band-Aid off and continue to do this for another two months, uh, there's every indication that they will achieve breakout capability and that we have some very stark choices because what we're facing right now in Ukraine is essentially uh, the reality that and the having a deliverable nuclear weapons capability is a veto uh, on your uh, foreign affairs. You can do basically whatever you want, and the Western alliance cannot respond. 
Likewise, we saw some of this, we're seeing some of this in North Korea now, which is making noises about testing uh, more of its weapons and tested a, a long range intercontinental ballistic missile that uh, has, uh, we don't know its capacity, its capability, but it's multi-stage and it has a bus uh, meaning that it can deliver uh, a weapon at pretty long range. And I, don't, I haven't seen anybody in, in the press say that it can reach the either Hawaii or the continental United States, but I wouldn't be surprised, frankly. It certainly can hit Guam. Um, and they effectively have a veto if they were to do something aggressive territorially, militarily, outside of the DMZ. Um, how would we respond? We wouldn't, frankly. Uh, and that's what we were staring down the barrel of uh, if Iran achieves breakout capability. And that we're staring down the barrel of that eventuality within this calendar year. I, I really, Soleimani, it's important to mention Soleimani because the uh, attack came on the anniversary of Soleimani's killing. And so it, in the Iranian mind, is some form of retaliation uh, for the Soleimani killing three years, three years uh, down And also the road. analysts believe that this was telegraphed earlier as a result. There was uh, an Israeli strike that killed um, two Hezbollah, I believe, or IRGC, I think it was Hezbollah. And um, Iran, Tehran, the government said, we will respond to this. And some believe that this was that response. Well, except they hit us, not, 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 not Israel. Yeah, and, the language out of Tehran and, and is they, they were hitting right. secret Israeli bases. Right. Okay, so... I, I, the thing is, like taking the effort again in the new world, old world sense, the effort to sort of isolate on this as a as a as an event uh, to be read separately from what is going on in Ukraine uh, may be fair as a as a matter of, uh, you know, world order or being a world leader, that sort of thing, you know, in 1969. If you read Henry Kissinger's, you know, astonishing memoir, White House Years, the description of the separate crises that faced Nixon when he came into office, uh, you know, just in the first three months that were both not related to each other and intrinsically related to each other, not only the ongoing Vietnam War, but the, uh, the, the Russo-Chinese uh, border war. Uh, there was a war between um, El Salvador and somebody rather, uh, the famous soccer war, uh, Honduras, I guess, um, uh, embassies blowing, you know, all sorts of things going on that were discrete and separate, but of course spoke to the larger atmosphere in which the United States was being tested on an hourly basis, not only by adversaries, but by just the conditions um, of, of the planet, which, which itself uh, was, was in a kind of planetary geopolitical crisis. And you just have to deal with them. And the, 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 you may want not to have to deal with Iran right now because, or you know, deal with the problems because you have Ukraine overshadowing everything and you got to focus on that. You don't need another front. But again, you know, the, the, the other people in the world get a vote on when you, on what you have to pay attention to. And the idea that this is not a test given the worldwide situation of some form of American resolve, like, no, you can't hit our, our consulate. I'm sorry. You can't aim rockets at our consulate. I don't care what your excuse is. You don't aim rockets at our consulate. You know what? Maybe you think you have a right because of Soleimani. Uh, we say Soleimani was a terrorist. We're there to do good things. Soleimani is evil. 
We did. We took out somebody evil. You may think that you have the right to do this. You don't have the right to do this. Sorry. And we're the United States. Sorry. You're, you know, go away. And we're going to, you know, we're going to make sure that the world understands that you can't do this because if you don't respond, particularly to consular embassy attacks, it's like broken windows. That's what the 1960s showed us. Like, you know, there, there were, there were, you know, running jokes among comedians about whether, you know, what embassy was being attacked that week. If you watched the Tonight Show, I mean, it, it, this was like a real thing. Embassy, embassy attacks was a real thing. Then it was all this question of like, is the United States worth the salt? Can can the United States be trusted to defend its territory and defend itself against? against you know radicals and and asymmetric attacks and things like that and if we don't do something about this while we are trying to figure out what to do to be resolute and tough on on ukraine uh the two are there's no well there's no way to separate the two right now we're we're being tested day by day in ukraine as well i mean the 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 fact that there was russian bombing 10 miles from the polish border uh, a few days ago or yesterday, um, which is actually not close to the front lines of the war that's being fought, is um, certainly a case of Putin sort of feeling out, pushing the envelope um, and and the the latitude given him by Joe Biden, who has said, we will defend NATO territory no more, no more than NATO territory. So he's so Putin's taken that right up to the border. He has, but in a way that I think is actually kind of reassuring that he can't actually do that. If they wanted to hit moving targets, right, you have to use fixed wing aircraft who can be in over the target. If you're going to use, you know, uh, cruise missiles launched from Belarus or even, you know, altitude launched cruise missiles, they can hit fixed targets. They can't hit moving targets so they can hit airfields is what they did. They hit an airfield, not very accurately either. Um, but that's their capability level at this point. And if that's their capability, they're not going to interdict weapon shipments until they're on the ground near Lviv. So it's just basically a back off. You know, this is a warning shot. And if that's their warning shot, it's not very I, impressive. I don't I don't find it reassuring. It was accurate enough to kill a bunch of uh, Ukrainians who, who had been trained up to a month ago by American National Guard forces. Yeah, it was a shot over the bow, but it was a shot over the bow that missed because that couldn't hit its intended. Okay, targets. okay. I'm not, let, I'm not worried okay. about that. And also briefly on this Iran stuff, this is not this is this is a result of our not responding to these attacks. Rocket attacks on US positions are a regular feature of life in Iraq. In January, they attacked the green zone was hit, you know, and it happens very frequently. And then we respond by hitting Shiite militias. So there's this kind of this is sort of a, a feature of life in Iraq now that is only escalatory in this one event. And if we respond to it, as I, as I said earlier, we should respond to it proportionately by not just hitting, you know, responding to another Shiite militia somewhere in, in uh, you know, the hinterlands of Iraq. It should be a proportionate response. Well, let, let's by the way. So if, if we want to talk about proportionate responses, so we have made this rule, right? We're not engaging with Russia. You know, we're not we're only defending NATO and we're going to try to help the Ukrainians as we can. Uh, but that's that's where we are. Right. OK, so. Russia now has opened essentially a second front using Belarus as a staging area. It's a sovereign country. It's another country. Yes, it's it's cat's paw, but it's a sovereign country. So we can't hit Russia. We're not going to hit Russia, blah, blah, blah. 
Where's the where's where's the law that says we we can't we can't uh, inform Belarus that it cannot be a staging area for Russian attacks on Ukrainian forces? Belarus is not Belarus is not a nuclear power. Belarus is uh, Belarus is a tin pot totalitarian dictatorship. I'm just saying, like the point is that if we allow Russia to define the field of battle, so it's like. You can do this, but you can't do that. You can go here, but you can't go here. We can we can use a neighboring country as a staging area, but you can't fly no planes out of Paul. You know, you can't fly no MiGs from Ramstein into into Ukraine. Like, great. So, so their their blackmail their blackmail power because of the nukes and the idea that we don't get want to get in a wider war with them is relatively shifting and sort of absolute. I mean. They've involved a second country uh, for their own convenience that we have absolutely no reason on our own to somehow accept their role in the war. Uh, they're not a combatant in the war. They're just a, you know, uh, and so I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm throwing this out. I don't have a, I'm not saying we should invade Belarus. Or that we should bomb up Belarus. I don't know what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that uh, that we are in a situation in which we are allowing the adversary to define the scope of the field of battle, and that can only end in disaster. If because we... the hope is the hope is that they will collapse on their own, or they will destroy and then swallow up Ukraine. There are only those are those are the only two options here or the only two possibilities if because the 14 allied nations yeah. pair back their weapon shipments as a response to this attack on this airfield what 10 miles from the border of nato then yeah they would be doing exactly what you're doing i don't think they will i think they'll hit the gas and they should because this was a facile response to a warning that moscow had issued uh two three days prior saying, look, these weapons shipments are an act of war. We're going to respond to them like they're an act of war. They did so in this case, and it was completely underwhelming. Well, underwhelming to whom? To me, because okay, it couldn't it hit what it wanted to, to hit. It's, it's a symbolic strike. Killed a lot of people. So it what destroyed happened? some infrastructure, but it didn't interject so, any weapons shipments. But what happens if a Russian rocket falls in Poland? That's the only, that's the question that's I have. That's the big Russian, fear, right? Right. Because they so, could be, and they can say oopsie daisy. But mm -hmm. if we haven't responded to this border incursion, which you, as I agree, no, it was a, clearly a, a testing of that that Putin was doing, and it wasn't like it worked all that well. Still, he was testing. If even if it's an accidental stray rocket that that kills a single civilian or a single soldier in, on Polish territory, that's that's where the red line. This is where we're into. Biden has drawn his version of the Syrian red line. Will he respond? I mean, all I saw over the weekend is that they're briefing TikTok stars about to talk about Ukraine. Like, again, I, I mean, I keep harping on this. Do we trust that he would actually then level Frankly, up? The best way to keep them from doing that is to make sure that they can't advance into Western Ukraine, which means flooding the place with man pads and end laws right. and, and uh, stinger missiles and javelin missiles and whatever we can to keep the advance away from there, because the closer they get with with the capacity to uh, to field fixed wing aircraft over Western Ukraine, that's when things get more and more dangerous. Right now, any air over Ukraine is really, really effective. Uh, see, it's interesting because um, I just think if you take these incidents and you sort of add them together as opposed to, take you know, separating them out. 
uh, things are getting very dangerous. Like things are, things are, the danger is accelerating and they're uh, the classic sort of, you know, um, I was going to say unintended consequence, but that's not really the right word. I mean, sort of ancillary effects of destate of world of destate destabilizing world events are by nature and definition unpredictable. And you don't know where you're going to have to turn your attention. That's why you want people who think about these things and have thought about them for 30 years, 24 hours a day to be engaged in the question of what ifs. You know, it's like battle planning in World War II. It's like, what if the Germans came here? What if the Germans went there? What if the Germans went the other place? What if the Japanese land on this island? What if they land on that island? What are the counterforce possibilities? What do we do to prevent that? Are there, are there you know, uh, behind the lines sabotage that we can practice to make sure that they don't come in here so that we have a free reign to go down there? You know, this is sort of what, war planning is about and and um uh how do we know that the that the iranians didn't get a didn't get a green light from the russians to hit us in erbil and elsewhere i mean all what they want is to distract us and 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 give us and give us a a separate focus and make us you know think about something else Two, two, two points to that. We also know over the weekend, there's some reporting that Russia is actively reaching out to China now for help. And, and so that's another that opens up a whole new uh, can of worms. I will say I, we do have we have the Pentagon has an in-house think tank that does nothing but strategic planning for future wars and, and sort of like 50, 100 year out kind of wars and a military capability. It's nonpartisan. It's been there a long time. My concern is that this is an administration that in a weird way is like the Trump administration and that it won't listen to those people, to listen to the strategists who actually do spend every day, all day thinking about these kinds of wars and these kinds of possibilities and gaming it all out. We have those people. They're amazing. They do their work very well. But will this administration listen to them? That's they don't have to. There's no requirement that they do that. So that's the concern. He doesn't seem to be listening. Who's he's he's clearly consulting his own conscience a lot here, but who do you think is really advising him 24 well, on this? Well, I, I just was, I mean, with that in mind, you know, John, you spoke about uh, unpredictable events unfolding. But I think there are also some quite predictable things that are going to heat up that we have to look out for, including the situation in Afghanistan. Um, this is this is a good time uh, in the mind of uh, terrorists to to go after us because we we seem feckless and unsure of what we're doing and reluctant uh, to engage, of course. Um, uh, and uh, Biden's having trouble corralling uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis to to do what we want in terms of uh, energy. This was also predictable. In fact, it was predicted in commentary about a year ago by Jonathan Chanzer, who who said Biden is blowing up the the the, the new relationship with MBS. So we're going to continue to be tested in all sorts of discouraging ways. Uh, And some will be predictable and some will not. And I don't know where it all goes. Well, look, I mean, hope is not a strategy. And I I hear when I speak to people who are, you know, as horrified as everybody else is and are heartsick and, you know, think what's going on is the worst, one of the worst things I've ever seen. There's all this sort of, you know, irrational hope stuff, you know, like, isn't someone going to poison Putin and is, you know, Somebody can't we assassinate him? You know, can't the Israeli can can somebody assassinate? Can't the head of his general staff shoot him? 
right? And there's a lot of this because it's like, well, how do we get out of this? He's a he's a despot. It's hard to you know see how we get out of it without him being removed or extirpated. And of course, that's the worldwide. That's the history of the planet. Is um, it, it's not so easy to kill the other guy's king. It's uh, it's it's a real problem, and it has the consequences of trying and failing can be catastrophic. But but it's a form of hope rather than dealing with reality. And I, I noted there was a, a fascinating paragraph in the um, New York Times coverage of where things stand um, that literally used the word hope in a very I, I find it a discouraging and even uh, depressing fashion because it, it, I'm not, I think it reflects kind of dominant liberal opinion, even as liberal opinion is, you know, forcing itself to revisit some of its assumptions. Quote, early last week, there was a glimmer of hope that a real negotiation would begin that could establish humanitarian conditions for Ukrainians to escape the horror of intense shelling and missile attacks and perhaps lead to peace talks. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman at a conference on Mr. Putin, said that if Ukraine changed its constitution to accept some form of neutrality rather than an aspiration to join NATO, recognize that the separatist areas of Donetsk and Lugansk were independent states and that Crimea was part of Russia, the military strikes would stop in a moment. In an interview with the, with the ABC News the next day, President Zelensky seemed surprisingly open to the idea. But it is unclear whether Mr. Putin himself would take that deal. Okay, so. There was a glimmer of hope. So where, who, whose hope is this? Whose glimmer of hope is this? I can only describe this as a kind of bubbling of the collective unconscious, which is like, you know, Russia, you know, lays out these terms. It says uh, no NATO, accept uh, separatism forever, uh, ex- you know, accept the annexation of Korea and the attacks will stop. And then Zelensky because he wants to seem accommodating, says, we'll, we'll, we'll consider whatever we have to consider at the table. And then it's like, no, like that's where things were. That's where things were before the war started. Ukraine wasn't in NATO. Ukraine wasn't probably going to ever get into NATO. The separatist regions were separate and Crimea had been annexed. The war started for different reasons. Putin has different reasons. And this, again, is this new world under failing to understand that Russia doesn't want the war to stop, even if Putin doesn't want, even if we're sitting there saying, what has he done to himself? He's miscalculated. Look at all that. There's too many deaths. And then this whole thing about how, oh, you know, the body bags are going to start coming home from Russia. And then the mothers are going to be really upset. I'm really sure that Putin is terrified of the mothers of the dead soldiers of Russia. I'm sorry, like what planet are we living on in which we can seriously have this conversation about about Putin and worrying that he's going to look bad in the eyes of mothers and that the word about the mothers is going to spread when he has clamped down on all communications except official state communications inside the country. There, there is still delusion being practiced. The world, again, the world of sort of conventional opinion is deluding itself that they are dealing, even though they think he's irrational, that there's somehow some rational, well, nobody wants the Ukrainians to die. Let's Surely the Russians can see reason and create a humanitarian corridor. Maybe he wants hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to die. Has anyone ever considered that? 
Maybe he wants to batter them into submission because the Ukrainians aren't the good Russian Ukrainians. They're the bad Ukrainian Ukrainians, and they're bad, and they don't want to create Kiev and Rus and re- reunite the countries. And maybe they need to be taught a lesson. Maybe they need to die in enormous numbers. I, I mean, I don't know what's going through his head. That's as, as plausible a you know reading of his behavior as anything else is. The other uh, hope, hopeful scenario that that has now been uh, floated in, in various uh, publications and stations is that uh, Putin is um, doing all this because he's uh, suffering from some sort of uh, medication owing to some illness. Right, uh, roid rage is happening. I was just going to say it's roid it. yeah. rage. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good luck with that one. You know, he's had he's been very isolated because of COVID. Right. He's very isolated and therefore his isolation has caused him to be irrational. Again, the only reason to look at this as an irrational act is if you don't understand what is motivating him. It is not irrational. It may be an incredibly high stakes gamble. But he wants to reintegrate Ukraine into larger Russia. That's not irrational. Maybe it's stupid. Maybe it's a stupid idea because you shouldn't want to try to do that because things are going to be bad because, you know, the Ukrainians don't want to be assimilated. But it's not irrational. But that's where that's again where uh, this idea, which which I think that the Biden administration is struggling with in terms of messaging and also policymaking it's it's becoming very hard for a certain swath of of um, successful elite liberal opinion to let go of the idea that there are people in the world who are driven by insane nationalism, who don't actually care about being liked by the West, who don't actually care about all the things that we like to think as global citizens. Remember that where everybody's describing themselves as global citizens? There's never that's always been a fiction. It's been one that's been propped up with peace for some time with skirmishes here and there. But it's very appealing to the people who live in that world. I don't live in that world, but I know some people who do. And it's it's been a struggle. I talked to one of them this weekend and she was just like, but I don't understand. Like, I'm a consultant. I go to Moscow. I've gone here. I've gone. There. How can this be happening? And she's not dishonest in her in her bafflement. She seriously just never understood that there are some very powerful forces, including among the public, including probably many of those Russian mothers who are happy to see this aggression on the part of Russia because they don't see it as aggression. They see it as a as the spread of a national idea with which for decades they've been nurturing and and hoping they have the the particular historical moment to act on, and they have. Look, Leo Strauss said that the modern world began when Machiavelli published The Prince. What is the what is the sound bite that emanates from The Prince? It is it is better to be feared than loved. We don't think this way in the West. Putin thinks this way. Xi thinks this way. This is what despots think. They love to be loved. They want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. They will throw a bone. You know, they will create a circumstance in which they deny love and then they'll provide it in a sort of almost destabilizing way to leave the populace off guard and say, well, thank God he's sending us bread or he's, you know, he's, he's putting our country back in the center of the world discussion or whatever. Putin does not mind being feared. And this much of what we hear here, read here, is based on the idea 
that he is motivated by the same things that motivate leaders in the West, and he isn't. And that's just the fact of it. And that's why, you know, uh, one of the things that I bring, bring up The Prince is that it was an effort to say that book, that 120-page book that changed the world is an effort to, to, to say, look at the world as it is, not as you would wish it to be. Use your cold-eyed analytical skills to survey the field of battle of human nature and then act accordingly if you have goals and aims that you wish to pursue. Strauss said that Machiavelli was an unchristian teacher of evil, and he may well have been that, but it was an effort to cut through the idea that the world functions as some kind of moral... um, you know, outgrowth of a proper divine intervention. And he was saying, no, 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 we're beyond that. Live in the world as it is. And if you live in the world of the prince, you look at Putin and you survey his behavior and you, you, you neither, you can condemn it, we all should condemn it, but you have to say, how is it that he thinks? What is it that he sees? And how, therefore, can you act, counteract him in a way that will respond to his incentives and his motives and not to the ones that you think because thinking that you're going to get a humanitarian corridor out of this guy is a way of spending four days living in a delusion rather than four days preparing, you know, coldly and boldly for what is to come. But that's, there's another, that's actually really, it's really important point because I think the other thing that's happening domestically here, and I think this is also impacting the Biden administration's response, is that we have had no one who, basically Trump was like Krusty the Clown playing the prince, right? He, he spoke in these ways, like, I know strategy, I know power, we're just as power, you know, it's this power game. But he was completely ineffective and didn't really know what he was doing. And there is a reaction, understandable, on the other side of the aisle to, to, play, to being that way, even though actually in terms of policymaking and strategy, there, are, there need to be people who are thinking that way. So I do, I get why Biden is not trying to do the sort of belligerent swagger that, that Trump did, uh, to great detriment to our many of our relationships, but there is a way in which that that also does appeal to people when it's done well in terms of talking about the, our our national interests and our strategy compared to places like Russia. So, um, a fantastic compliment to our conversation here, and something that will advance your thinking on where this is going. You can find on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast this week, where he talks to. Matt Pottinger. So Matt Pottinger, one of the most interesting people in the world realm of American foreign policy, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and Reuters, who in the middle of his career up, upped and joined the Marines, did combat deployments uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then went and got himself, I guess, an MA and a PhD. And he was a deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration, dealing mostly with China. And this is a conversation, a geopolitical conversation between Dan and Matt about what the world looks like now that uh, the invasion of Ukraine has happened, what the what it means that the Biden administration apparently seems intent on continuing to pursue the Iran deal when the Iran deal is not really achievable in any way that would make any rational sense for even those who believe that this is the way you should go with Iran's nukes. And uh, most importantly, uh, the role of China and what China perceives and sees in Ukraine, 
uh, when it comes to China's own ambitions toward Tehran. It's a fantastic conversation. I listened to it uh, yesterday. Um, I was so taken by it that I slowed it down. I usually listen at faster than one time speed, and I slowed it down so I could really concentrate on it. That's how much I like this conversation between Dan Senor and Matt Pottinger on the Call Me Back podcast. Download that from Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Be illuminated, be excited, be depressed, uh, and, and learn something new. It's really, really great. Um, so remember how, uh, how there was COVID? So is this all that it really was going to take? to end COVID. I have a serious question. Like, so there was a, a world, a national world, international crisis hits, uh, and, um, COVID is gone. Uh, COVID has gone, except in this sense, there are still, you know, hysterical articles in the Atlantic about how, you know, I don't want to go outside. And the New York times did do a story on the danger of a COVID surge in Ukraine. Like, you know, that's their, leading problem is that, you know, I mean, the, you know, the fatality rate of, of COVID is still three or 4%. Like, you know, I think probably the fatality possibilities in a place like Kiev are significantly higher than that from a bomb in the next three weeks. Like you're much more likely to get injured or killed by, by an actual bombing than you are, even if you uh, get Omicron, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm out of my mind here. Um, but I mean, this does sort of raise this question is, is, is is that all it took? Okay, granted, Omicron is much, you know, we went through this period, we got a variant that was less, was more contagious and less damaging. And so people were like, well, we can't go through this forever if you're going to, if this is as sick as you're going to get and we're all vaccinated, blah, blah, blah. Anybody got any thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I still think it's pretty much over in the West, not because of the conditions that are presented by the virus or it's successive mutations but because the lack of political will to endure the what we've been enduring over the last two years not so in east asia the city of Xinjiang in china is under lockdown 19 million people under a for real 2020 style lockdown um, because of rising case rates that the chinese government is reporting uh, who knows what they're not reporting but it's a genuine surge and genuine rise in deaths hong kong for example is experiencing a, a profound amount of death uh, more death than they've ever experienced as a result of um, these infections, which tell you a couple of things. One, that the Sinovax is trash, that it just doesn't do what the Western Sinovax do. is the Chinese is the Chinese uh, mRNA or right. whatever they they, they knew say is marginally less. Eff- always knew it was marginally less effective than Western vaccines, but apparently it's much more less effective uh, to use that daylight savings time construction, I apologize, uh, far less effective <laughs> than, uh, than its uh, Western competitors. But also, um, who knows how long this lasts, but if it lasts for any appreciable time, get ready to see uh, the supply chain problems reemerge, uh, perhaps even worse than we experienced it in 2020 if you see Eastern Asian hubs begin to shut down again for lack of labor. Uh, and then contribute all that contributing uh, phenomenon will uh, add to inflationary pressure in the West. And then you talk about the inflationary pressure coming from the lack of gas that's coming online, which is going to contribute to more inflation. And so we could see 10% inflation in this country in six months. 
There's also uh, on the domestic front, and you guys know this because I've been ranting about it for the last two weeks on our on our text chain, but uh, there's still battles going on to wrest power, emergency powers away from both at the local level and the state level from people who should no longer be exercising them. So in D.C., we finally on Wednesday, D.C. public school children, yes, they will be allowed to choose not to mask. But this came after threatened, uh, threatening lawsuits by several different groups of parents, lots of action, lots of calls to the mayor, to the chancellor. And there were a lot of parents who said, we can't, we have to mask forever because I'm now I'm worried about flu. Now I'm worried about all these things. We have to base policy around the immunocompromised children who are 0.002% of the population in our school system. So this idea that the extreme safetyism, the lingering effects of that, are going to be felt because the minute a new variant, like the one that Noah has mentioned, is already in China, the minute news starts reporting that and, and alarmist style news reports of that, which they will definitely do if things are going south for, for Biden uh, in the polls, you're going to see the, the return of all of this stuff. So I, I would urge people to be extremely uh keep their guard up about how these emergency powers are being wielded when they expire, follow up on that, push push people to, to let their lawmakers know we're watching their use of these powers because permanent emergency is a very dangerous state. We've been living in it for a couple of years and we need to make sure that our systems are in place to, to revoke those powers when we don't need to have them. This is, that's really important short-term uh, possibility and I, I wouldn't discount at least, uh, you know, some some clamor for the return of these kind of restrictions. If another virus or a variant emerges, I would be surprised to, the, to see it widely picked up outside of dark blue cities. One long term prediction that I think is pretty solid that you can make is that the return of the old world I've been talking about has really let the scales fall from the eyes of people who thought these alternative systems, much like in the 1930s, for example, these alternative systems were uh, a, a better model to follow. You know, obviously, you mean the Chinese, we, mean the Chinese in particular. The Chinese in particular, in this particular instance, you know, we've talked about how the uh, the more muscular national conservative types who had a particular affinity and affection for how Russia did business and to a lesser degree how uh, people like uh, Orban in Hungary did business. That's been exposed as a fantasy. And then the technocratic left, which has always had a soft spot for how China um, managed its affairs and its disregard for the messy business of public opinion. Um, that's falling by the wayside as we see them unable to extricate themselves now from COVID in a way that we have. Look around you objectively. We have. Are, aren't we, the, um, are, but aren't also the, uh, the, the leftist dreams about domestic change? That were supposed to emerge in the in the new post-COVID world also falling by the wayside. I oh, think so. We're all getting I mean, back to normal them, and not a new normal. No, but I mean, a lot of them are being imposed. Uh, you know, the 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 proper way to impose the kind of changes that they want to see remain kind of top down, but in a slightly different way. Right? They're trying to blackmail corporations. They create c conditions and circumstances in which in which uh, bureaucracies are forced to operate on the on the basis of these new principles, or they can create a controversy or force a controversy down the throat of, you know, say the largest entertainment conglomerate in the world, Disney, um, uh, whose uh, CEO simply wanted to stay out of the political controversy in Florida and not take a side. And he was not permitted to do so for reasons that elude me, actually, as that is the rational, sane, and uh, fiscally, um, you know, uh, as a, as a, as a, what, what do you call it? Sort of the person who uh, fiscally responsible thing to do for his stock, his stock price and his corporation is, okay, there's a big fight going on over this school's bill in Florida. Yes, we're a big, uh, we're a big uh, employer in Florida. 
we're staying out of it. We're just a company. We're not, we're not going to take a stand on this. And, and basically the entertainment industry would not allow that to happen as he hasn't consolidated his power appropriately at Disney. So it's still the case that in, let's say, non-democratic circumstances in which people don't really get a vote, but in which the mob and, and the kind of um, delivered uh, conventional public opinion can end up having a disproportionate effect on somebody like that, that stuff, that revolutionary stuff is still very much in play. But Abe, I wanted to bring up the thing that you've said from the outset of as, as, as New York was getting it two years ago and this kind the kind of triumphalism elsewhere, including conservative about like, you know, other States where things weren't so bad and you had this, or maybe it was the second wave or something. You said, look, sooner or later, everybody is going to go through the COVID crisis. That seems to be the lesson of COVID. There is no way that you are not going to go through the COVID crisis. And Shenzhen, China is a very interesting situation because remember, we still have no idea what the effect of COVID was in China. All we were told by its, you know, sycophants was that boy they really came at it hard and they used they locked down and if only we did what they did and if we only did what the south koreans did you know we could have nipped this thing in the bud well there may not be any nipping it in the bud i mean it may well be this kind of circumstance in which this opportunistic virus finds the people that it can injure and will injure them and in the united states it effectively found most of the people that it could effectively Injury, you know, it pl- you know, plucked them off like low-hanging fruit. And maybe that's what's happening in Shenzhen. We just don't know. We don't know what the variant is in China. We don't know what the response has been to whatever. We don't know how many people have gotten, you know, have gotten sick. We don't know how many people will get sick. We don't know how many people have gotten sick in the first place. Yeah. I mean, you know, the idea was that, oh, if we had just done, namely a lot of the the the, the Eastern uh, countries that that Noah had mentioned that was you know if we had just done as if the, I like the just you know as if you could you could take America and and just impose this the the these these um these the systems used uh, in South Korea China Taiwan Hong Kong but yeah and this 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 gives the lie to it or look there are there are cases where COVID has been you know kept uh, dramatically at, at a dramatically lower rate than in the U.S. But look how that's distorted those countries, namely Canada. Right. I mean, that was something that people said, why can't we? OK, we, we don't have to be like like uh, uh, China, but can we at least do what Canada's doing? Well, you know, look, look where that led. Yeah, there's right, now a surgeon. There's now a surgeon in New Zealand. There's a right. surge in New Zealand, the country that sealed itself off from the planet Australia, for two yeah. years. Yeah. Right. So. The point is that it this, um, you know, m- the mitigation measures or the, you know, or the COVID zero strategies that were, were being used that were effectively the way in which we were told we, w- the, the direction we should aim for, even though we could never achieve it because we have a functioning, we're a functioning society and can't simply end the functioning of our society for this purpose, that those, you know, history may show that there was no this was a fool, you know, this was the definition of a fool's errand and created social instability, um, mental instability, uh, you know, like long-term consequences for the education of children and all of that. And that when you, when, when you're in a position to actually judge 
the cost versus, you know, the cost of mitigation versus, uh, you know, uh, other things when you actually can pull back 10 years from now, we'll, we'll see where we'll see who would have made the better choice. Well, and we, we are already, we already are starting to do that at the, you know, at the immediate level, we're seeing the studies, certainly the educational, the learning loss studies are coming out. We're seeing, you know, the mental health issues finally discussed openly in mainstream publications, stuff that, you know, all of us have been talking about for, for two years now, but the, what concerns me is that the fraying of the social fabric here, the the uh, erosion of trust in the in the experts that we actually should be able to trust and listen to is so great that if this if a new variant comes and public health establishment CDC says, OK, we got to lock down again, we got to do this again, who even in blue states, I can tell you. I know parents who are the deepest blue of blue, and they are going to lawyer up to fight every single thing that might be imposed right. on their children now because that is gone. And that is that's why, hey, you know, you know what else is gone? Back. You know what else is gone? Fauci. Anthony yeah, Fauci is on a milk carton right now where, where where we have not seen that guy's face in a month. Something happened like they actually did say. Go enough already. They, they put him in a bunker and they blocked the door behind him. I well, mean, he's chicken must... little. He's in a coop. <laughs> okay. He's in a coop. I mean, it, it's fascinating because they've like, locked he up really... science itself. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 yeah, the anti science has won. You know, he is science and anti science has won. But, but, you know, there's also a case to be made uh, that, uh, it was in the long run very, very bad, very dangerous, very bad, very sickening for people to engage and indulge in this power. Like Andrew Cuomo was effectively destroyed because he became, uh, you know, uh, uh, he be uh, having had all of these tendencies. He became a, uh, you know, he became a sort of smiling dictator to the extent that he could be so in New York, and the the logic of him, of his like utter loss of uh, any kind of check or balance on his power was that the state rose up to spit him out. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it was like, we, he can't be allowed to go on like this. Let's gin up some stuff from, you know, from the, you know, from the old files to go for his jugular about how he, you know, mistreats women like that wasn't always there, but, you know, first he started to seem vulnerable. And then, but I mean, the whole point is like, if he had been more prudent, he wouldn't have seized the power in the long run. That's bad for you. It's bad for everybody who, you know, who seized it or acted like somehow they, it was in their power to, you know, you know, sort of flick a finger and and close things. Now, was it good for Gretchen Whitmer that she decided what businesses could sell seeds? No, it 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 it, it harmed her standing forever. Um, I mean, it's like you know, uh, there's a certain type of prudence that people lost under these circumstances. Now, let me talk to you about our good friends at Bolin Branch, uh, the the signature sheets that feel so soft and light you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory softest organic sheets on the market get better with every wash comfort isn't their only standard they only use 100 sustainable raw materials as the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen buttery soft lightweight organic cotton and a classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time they're not too hot they're not too cool 
They focus on quality over quantity. No inflated thread counts here because more isn't always better. Seven beautiful colors in all sizes, made to a higher standard. And there's nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. Bowling Branch offers 17-inch deep fitted sheets and labeled sides to help you make your bed beautifully every time. And it gives you a fair price, plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BowlingBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at checkout. That's BowlingBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And... How are you going to find your best, your favorite new piece of outdoor gear? If you sign up for a battle box, it finds you. Battle box is your monthly go-to subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear. Getting the best gear for yourself not only takes time, but can be incredibly expensive. That's why battle box brings you name brand, high quality products every month at half the price of what they cost on their own. Just pick the box that works for you. Get tested and vetted products you can trust that are selected by an expert team of outdoor professionals from an aquapod emergency water kit to an atomic bear survival bivy delivered right to your doorstep each month battle boxes shipped over one one million boxes since 2015 and it's been featured everywhere from the new york times to survivor's edge sign up receive survive what are you waiting for don't miss another battle box mission and from now until march 31st get a free mystery box worth more than 115 dollars with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com commentary that's b-a-t-t-l-b-o-x try battle box t-r-y-b-a-t-t-l-b-o-x free mystery box worth 115 dollars right now if you go to trybattlebox.com commentary trybattlebox.com commentary uh so um we mentioned uh, Shenzhen and the possibility of the supply chain uh, crisis, uh, increasing inflation. I don't even think it's a possibility. People are talking about it as though it is now, you know, a likelihood. And uh, we are talking now about having spent a year watching inflation grow as a problem and having the American people say, I think, I think polls say they say it is the largest single problem and the thing that's m- most concerns them. Um, and yet we could still be in for a giant inflation shock, despite the year's preparation and the slow but steady rise of inflation to the current, you know, almost 8% level, that we ain't seen nothing yet. We've got uh, March and, uh, you know, uh, oil futures uh, affecting the oil market. And now we have this question of what's going to go on with the international supply chain from China. Um and so even though you see polling saying that, you know, Biden has recovered some of, you know, has, has, has gotten out of the basement uh, and, you know, people, more people uh, like his handling of the Russia situation uh, than you might anticipate, even though they think he's not being tough enough and all of that. But, you know, he's like up from sort of where he was like in the almost delving down uh, below 40% approval into like 42, 43% approval on mass, which isn't, you know, a, a huge jump, but it's not nothing. Um, I just don't think he, we've seen anything yet, unfortunately, both politically and personally. I mean, look, effectively people, people's pay has now been, have, have now been cut at a time when their pay was going up, well, nominally their pays up like five and a half percent. Uh, since before the pandemic, because there, of course, is the hiring shortage. And so therefore, you know, the salary competition is greater and all that. But um, I don't know. Uh, 
uh, effectively now people's, uh, you know, re real income is down 2%, not up, not up five. So anybody have any well, deep thoughts here? The Democrats had their retreat this weekend, which evidently is now a bunch of them are coming down with COVID diagnoses. So of course we will not hear super spreader events, you know, bandied about as we used to. Um, but they didn't seem to come out of it with a lot of enthusiasm or, or positive messaging either. So I, I, it, it looks bad for them. And, and there have been a number of interesting stories lately about previously uh, held democratically held strongholds in places like South Texas and elsewhere that are now kind of that are now going Republican who have candidates who have a real chance to win. And the message it has nothing to do with Trump. It has nothing to do. It has to do with these everyday bread and butter concerns. How much does it cost to fill your tank? How much are groceries? Can you put money aside this year so your kid can do something this summer, like go to camp? A lot of families, the answer is going to be no, because as you said, even if they have still have a job, their money doesn't stretch as far as it used to. And the extras are the first thing to go. And people have been feeling deprived of those extras because of lockdowns and COVID for two years. And just at the moment where they are allowed to do these things, they're going to struggle to afford them. People remember that when they go to the polls. And, you know, let's even acknowledge that that there's it's extraordinarily hard to do anything effective immediately about what's going on here, you know, if, if, if you're in the administration. But what you can not do, which which will affect you in the polls, is not try to use the moment to pitch yet again, uh, build back better and not not call gas hikes the the the, the Putin price hike uh, and, you know, not not try to pass the buck, dodge the question, cite the Nobel laureates uh, and and move on. And that's that's what they've been doing. Yeah, there appears Look, to be a lot of confusion effect. and even resentment over uh, the public. <clears throat> what seems to be um, conflict within the public mind that generally when you pull the issues, is Joe Biden's response to the invasion of Ukraine, everything's positive. Seven out of 10 Americans approve of what he's doing. And yet he's underwater on the issue of Ukraine and he's underwater on everything. But he's underwater on the issue of Ukraine and there's confusion turn evolving into frustration with voters who seem to be of two minds on this issue. And I don't think they're of two minds on it anyway. They approve of confronting this threat. They uh, are willing to absorb hardship as a result of confronting this threat um, nobly. Uh, at the same time, they don't believe that we should be in this position whatsoever and are frustrated with the leadership that has brought us to this place. Whether that's coherent or not is not for me to say or anybody else to say, but it is a, an understandable sentiment. It is perfectly coherent. I think we all agree that it's perfectly coherent, that history is contingent, and that things have happened over the last year, year and a half that made it more rather than less likely, behaviors of the United States have made it more rather than less likely that what happened in Ukraine was going to happen, meaning Afghanistan. I mean, we don't know whether it was a 5% effect or a 20% effect or a 40% effect. But that it had no effect is not true, and that it was the decision of one man, and that it was executed in the way that it was executed, those are things for which the American people can properly hold Joe Biden to account. I don't know if they can hold, you know, individual Democrats to account, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children unto the fourth generation. You know, you, you don't, people will, people will punish whom they punish along the way because that's what they think they need to do. I, I'm a little, um, I think that this, 
creates uh, an even more obvious example of the perfect storm that is facing the Democrats because enormous amounts of efforts are being made to nationalize the election against Republicans. You know, uh, sort of elevating, even though I think it's natural and it's understandable, it's not like being ginned up in that sense, but, you know, elevating Lauren Boebert and, and um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn to sort of the level of high-ranking American celebrities so that you can, you know, you can say, are these the people you want running your country? Is going to be harder and harder when there's an actual thing to to vote against or vote about, like inflation or or the general sense that the party that has had control of Congress and the presidency for the last two years has led us, or we are. This is the America we're living in under their leadership, and so the nationalized effect is going to be much more powerful and potent against the Democrats. Then it will be if you can pluck, you know, and there'll be other crazy candidates that Republicans are going to nominate in various places, including like the leading Democratic candidate for governor in uh, in Arizona, that sort of thing. But I just don't think that we're going to see the country is there's just too much happening for people to for people to say, I can't vote for that person. And I don't know, because uh, because, you know, there's this crazy person over here who is uh, who's terrible. And so uh, on the one hand, uh, people will have reason to vote in, in November. They'll have reason to look more heart, more seriously at their choices in a midterm election. We've already had a wild increase in midterm, the midterm electorate. We had the largest midterm electorate ever in, in, in 2018. So this is the election that follows along with that. You know, there were 62 million Democrats and 53 million Republicans. Um, uh, astonishing numbers. Um, and so I don't know, you know, we could really, we could really see the, the, the natural advantage that Republicans have, or the party out of power has in a midterm election, just accelerate beyond words. Now you still have to have races that you can win. And from what I hear, you know, the number of actually contested races in the house is really 50, maybe a little less, like there's no way for Republicans to win 70 seats or something like that. But, you know, if they win 25 seats or 30 seats or something like that, they will end up with the largest majority they've ever had. So there's that. And then there's this big question about the Senate and these relatively close, you know, races where there's sort of four or five points between the Republican and the Democrat either way. And if the circumstances are what they are, <laughs> they will all, that's what a wave is, they will all go in one direction. And people who you don't think are going to win are going to win. And people who probably shouldn't lose are going to lose because that's the national uh, atmosphere. But we'll, you know, but look there, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do something dramatic and amazing uh, in, in Ukraine and something fantastic will happen. And there'll be a rally around the flag effect that will help Biden and the Democrats. I don't know what that is. And I don't really understand how, how he can pull it off, but you know, it is March and the election's November and, there's a lot of time between now and then, but there, what there, and there's also 24 hours between now and our next podcast, when we will talk on our next podcast about the uh, April issue of commentary, which I believe is either up or going up today, should be going up today. It will be up today. Yep. Okay. So, and we'll talk about some of the material uh, therein. And until then, for uh, Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.